we're all talking about all these medals that we need to make this, uh, you know, mid-century net zero target happen, but nobody is talking about how to get it out of the ground. So everyone's going around making these huge forecasts about what's going to happen. She said, but banks aren't coming to the party to fund it. Governments aren't really coming to the party to fund it either. So the bull case is, is that everybody knows what we need. Nobody knows how we're going to get there. And that's where the opportunity is because it's going to take the market by surprise, especially when we're talking about a global recession. It, it, that, that adds the fear element of getting money out into the market. It means that certain commodities can be particularly volatile because there's going to be that demand shock when we actually do start realising that we've got to make these investments happen. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this video for Fortune and Freedom. I'm joined today by Shay Russell, who is out snooping for investment opportunities. Shay, where are you? I am at uh, IMARC, which is a mining conference held annually in Australia. And this year, well, it's an international mining conference held annually in Australia. And basically, it brings all the big names to the yard. And what are they doing at the yard? <laughs> well, there's been a robo-doggy. That made my day. Um, look, so this is basically an industry talking to industry event. It's very much a deal-making event uh, where you will see construction companies talking to miners, um, companies basically flogging their top-line tech and how they're going to change the future of mining. The one thing that I do like about this event as well, it has a hefty ticket price. So it also essentially attracts a very qualified investor to the room. Like I think the ticket price is like 1,500 pounds. So it means that the people who are coming are your brokers, private equity, um, people who represent sophisticated investors. And who's presenting? Is it the mining services companies or is it mining companies themselves? Is it about the resources or the industry? It's actually a whole hodgepodge put together over the three days. So you've got um, basically uh, heads of government talking about the mining industry. You've got uh, lobbyists talking about the mining industry. You've got mining companies themselves as well as basically the people who put the pieces together. And there's also an investment segment where, you know, you'll have junior mining companies. So let's say anything under 400 million AUD market cap presenting. So there's at any given time five theatres running presentations. And of course, there's also you there, uh, the, the main yes. speaker. Yeah. Uh, okay, oh. let's move on to the investment trends. So um, what are you hearing about that's piquing your interest? Uh, okay, so there has been a lot of talk about lithium, but I've fallen out of love with lithium. I fell out of love with lithium when it you know, rallied 400% in two years. So there is a lot of money going to lithium and investment panels have been talking about that that's essentially sucking the oxygen out of the investment market. My favourite so far, not that we're allowed to have favourites in this industry, is good old base metals. I've heard a couple of companies talk about lead and zinc deposits. Uh, one company I uh, actually, incidentally, a tiny UK-listed company was talking about tin deposits and how hard it is to find a good quality tin deposit. So that got me really excited. Um, basically, I believe base metals is the most exciting topic from a resource point of view coming out of this conference today. Is there going to be a big enough investment opportunities for investors in those sorts of metals, given that they're dominated by these you know, huge mining behemoths like BHP and Rio? Well, they are dominated by the huge mining beasts, but new deposits aren't being found by the, new, uh, the huge beasts. So this is where the investment opportunities are for companies. Based, and like we are talking tiny. One of the UK company that presented today has a £10 million market cap. So a squiddler, basically. 
but that's where the opportunities are going to be in these base metal deposits. And a lot of these ones that we're talking are working targets, not with the goal of being acquired by a big guy, but pointing out that the size of the asset belongs to a much bigger miner. Are we talking about demand stories or supply stories? Because most people will be quite sceptical about the idea that we're going into recessions, there's all these inflationary issues, there's lots of problems in the world, demographics are declining, China's struggling. Is, is, is supply going to contract enough to outweigh those factors or have I got the demand story wrong? Um, so from a demand point of view, I don't think one thing people have factored into the lithium, you know, all need lithium now is if we are going into a global recession, People are going to buy less EVs, so lithium automatically becomes unattractive to me on that level. Uh, companies, again, that tend to do quite uh, – tend to have less volatility than specialty metals are, again, base metals like lead and zinc because they are needed in almost everything that we touch. They're a necessary metal to function, whereas lithium, it's not so much a luxury metal, but it is a high-end consumer product for a better way of putting it. Uh, so from a demand point of view, metals like uh, lithium and cobalt, as well can be hard hit if supply so, uh, sorry if demand so, uh, suddenly shrinks. Uh, so that's one argument to it. I forgot what, to finish my train of thought. Sorry. Uh, what, what's the bull case? What's the bull uh, bull sign? Uh, every single um, presentation I've been to that's from either a giant miner or a government is talking about. We're all talking about all these metals that we need to make this uh, you know mid century net zero target happen but nobody is talking about how to get it out of the ground. So everyone's going around making these huge forecasts about what's going to happen. She said, but banks aren't coming to the party to fund it. Governments aren't really coming to the party to fund it either. So the bull case is, is that everybody knows what we need. Nobody knows how we're going to get there. And that's where the opportunity is because it's going to take the market by surprise, especially when we're talking about a global recession. It, it, that, that adds the fear element of getting money out into the market. It means that certain commodities can be particularly volatile because there's going to be that demand shock when we actually do start realising that we've got to make these investments happen. I have a great – one guy yesterday controversially said on the panel I was hosting, he called for coal to be at 1000 bucks a tonne. So it's hit a 600 bucks a tonne, you know, a few months ago, and he's like, coal could be at 1000 bucks a tonne in just a few months. So that's a pretty bullish coal. It's a bit bizarre that coal stocks have been the best performers. It's, it reminds me of the tobacco story. What's the logic behind that? Because I'm assuming that there's no ginormous coal production boom. It's just a price boom. Uh, who's making money in coal stocks? Is it explorers, developers, producers? Mine, yeah, producers. The explorers are probably only making speculative money, so I don't think it's going to last. But the producers are the ones making um, – are the ones who are able to charge a premium now that everybody's – uh, needs to shore up supplies because that's really what's happening. It's about guaranteeing supply. And does that apply then across all the other metals as well? It's going to be about who has the production rather than who has the uh, exploration potential, the development potential? I, um, I agree. Look, I do see a lot of speculative money going into explorers. Like there's been a, a few explorers that have made deals on like certain anomalies rather than a confirmed resource. But I do think you'll see money flow into the companies who can confirm that they've got a resource when that you know when when the price spikes. I want to ask you about a, a video that John Stossel, uh, an American, I don't know what he is. He's a I guess he's a TV host. He's known to be a libertarian. He pointed out that because of the resource intensity of electric vehicles of EVs, they're actually higher polluting 
than cars for the first 60,000 miles. So you've got to use them for more than 60,000 miles in order for that net benefit in terms of emissions to actually start to pay off because of the resource intensity. I'm wondering what you make of it and whether you're concerned that so much of the green uh, tech boom has, has gone bust for investors, whether there's a risk that that's going to transition to the resources sector, the resources part of the green boom. Um, nobody likes to actually talk about how carbon emitting EVs are at the production stage of when they're being made. Uh, I really I like that. It, yeah, good, good, good. I really like that it's being put out there because it is an important factor. Um, we do need to talk about the fact that we need longevity with these products. And a lot of cars people drive today, they sort of trade in at that five to seven year mark. That's the sweet spot. The other problem too with a lot of EVs is the concept that these batteries need to be replaced after a certain period of time. So again, there might never be that net carbon benefit at the end if these batteries are constantly being um, replaced. The argument I want to make, and I, I said earlier to some lovely investors that are sitting quite opposite, opposite me while I make this video, there hasn't been enough talk at this conference about circularity. In fact, I haven't heard that once. Um, and that is the reason why there isn't enough talk about circularity, it's still too expensive to extract these metals from the batteries that they are in uh, versus basically getting them out of the ground cheaper. And also, too, I think you'll find from the circularity point of view, they're still as equally, um, they still uh, have an equally carbon-heavy footprint. So these are important things to factor in. But the reason why we are pushing for EVs, uh, and this is something only new that I've cottoned on to recently, is the... The most, uh, the quickest way to have net carbon goals is to do it at the EV level, at the consumer level, not at the not at the grid. If we were doing it at the grid, we would do it through nuclear, but that is too expensive. That would be the most efficient way to do it. But the reason why we're pushing EVs is because that's the way for mass adoption. Let's focus a bit more on on the other end of the spectrum on coal. Do you think that the boom in coal can continue? Do you agree with that that extraordinary forecast that one of the speakers made? Uh, absolutely, and I'm about to paraphrase him very, very badly. I'm going to take his insights and put them out into the internet. He pointed out that it's all well and good to talk about this energy transition, but it's only going to happen with things like renewables, so uh, solar panels and wind turbines. But every wind turbine has steel in it, and steel is made with coking coal. So there is going to, and he said, you know, not enough of the demand is pointing out, you know, not enough new um, coking coal mines are coming about, and he said not enough people are realising how much coking coal is going to be consumed in order to um, make these wind turbines happen. And he thinks that could be the sleeper commodity happening right there. So it's a substitution effect um, from, from energy use into, into uh, the resources needed, again, to make yep. this net zero goal happen. And yes. where's the investor um, opportunity in coal then? Is it still with the production? Because it sounds like it's going to continue for a very long time. And those production stocks have gone up a lot. They're the best performers, I think, this year. So where, where do you look to now? Um, I think, look, I think the prices are going to fall down a little bit, although I am still quite bullish on coal. I do think that the big money has been made, but I still believe that there are long-term opportunities in the coal sector. If, it, you, if you see sort of the wind come out of the sales in coal, uh, long-term the, the, the need for it still stacks up. The Germans are busy felling one of their wind farms in order to get the coal underneath, so it seems that they agree with you. Um, let's finish on uh, on some of the, the fun tech side, the automation side. I used to love writing about the idea of a fully automated mine 
like one of the Australian companies managed to do, I think in, in Mali or one of the African awesome. countries. What's the latest on the automation of mine other than RoboDogs? Oh, my God. This has been so much fun. So augmented reality when it comes to mine maintenance, for example, and I actually got to have a play with it before. Simple thing, you know, it, it's about employing a local um, a local workforce but still having that knowledge base somewhere else. It's a simple thing, popping a headset on, they can see what you're working on and they work you through uh, how, basically how to fix something. I think that's going to be extremely important going forward. FIFO costs are just getting too much for miners to bear, so there is a need to localise the workforce. That's been a lot of fun. But honestly, one of the really big trends happening in tech uh, at the moment, actually there's two. One is uh, autonomous vehicles all throughout, basically streamlining the process and reducing the need for human intervention. Because humans are actually mostly where things go wrong in mining. The other one that I absolutely loved is drone telecommunications for getting instant access to communications. I did a little video about this earlier. Um, so a lot of the time when you're trying to get communications up on a remote exploration project, not even a site, you've got to wait for it to be built. You've also got to create the argument necessary to spend that money to build it. Uh, the drone tech that's being used is basically you buy this drone, you launch it in 10 minutes, and it instantly connects to a 4G satellite network, and it can cover a 3.5-kilometre radius, but it's, ha it's basically strong enough that it can handle um, high upload and download speed, so it can transfer an awful lot of data as well as video. And I think that could be quite game-changing for exploration projects. It could see them move along quicker, uh, but also too for emergency scenarios. I mean, Australia at the moment is either underwater or on fire. Um, so increasing communications at the ground level without having to send people in, uh, I think has very far-reaching applications. So that's been super, super exciting technology to play with. Although they didn't let me fly the drone. I think I need one of those drones at my house. And Nigel, <laughs> that's too funny enough. Um, one of the most interesting experiences I've had in the, the mining industry world was visiting Komatsu, where my wife was born in Japan, which is the... the uh, where the company Komatsu was founded. You can probably see their trucks at industrial and mining and road building sites around the world. And they have a, a mining automation sort of showrooms, a tourist attraction. And you can you know, cool. pretend to drive one of their huge mining trucks using one of those um, audiovisual sets and, and try different mining equipment virtually, as well as climb up into the real thing. Those, those oh, awesome. That was good fun. Um, so... I, I love that stuff as much as you, Shay. Thank you for spying on uh, on the resources world for us and to everyone at home. Thanks for watching. Resources.